It's a pleasure and, of course, a great privilege to present a talk in honour of Colin Matthew, born in 1941 and died in 1999, and especially one that addresses history in the public realm. I hope that his spirit and interests run through the lecture. He was a distinguished historian, editor and biographer, someone who was interested in, wrote about and collected portraits, a scholar who valued clear exposition and reached wide audiences. In this sense, he was a public historian through biography and portraiture. Given his work on William Gladstone and his founding role in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography from 1992, I'm taking most of my examples from the 19th century and from the dictionary conceived in the 1880s by George Smith, 1824 to 1901, the prominent and highly successful publisher. The Oxford Dictionary, published online and in hard copy in 2004, is regularly dated, updated online, and thanks to Colin, it includes many portraits, whilst through its constant development, it has a living presence. The theme of bringing the past to life is ubiquitous, for centuries, portraits have been deemed somehow to keep people alive, and their vivid use in fiction, music, and poetry reinforces the point. They do so in a different way to biographical texts, by inviting beholders to engage directly with the faces and bodies of fellow human beings, thereby prompting a range of reactions, which are sometimes, as we know from iconoclasm, quite hostile. These phenomena reinforce the powers of representations of specific persons. There are broad landscapes within which the intricate dynamics between portraits, biographies, and public history are best seen. Biography is merely an umbrella term for ma many types of text, entries in dictionaries, memoirs, sustained scholarly productions, shorter introductions for non-specialist readers, and so on. It's a major form of historical writing. Although in the history departments of academic institutions, some mixed feelings about it endure, perhaps because it is widely perceived as literary, and many outstanding biographers work outside institutions of higher education. Despite the existence of many brilliant biographies, uh, by, uh, by academic historians, and there are some in this room. Um, that's a, a, a common view, that it's maybe a slightly problematic genre. So reactions to the genre, as to specific biographies, are bound to vary with authors, subjects, the nature and degree of fame, and the period in question. Many biographies are trade books where the quality of writing, its liveliness and accessibility are likely to bear on critical and commercial success. So biography is diverse. Biography is diverse. Historians of many kinds have for centuries written and used biographies and the genre needs to be reckoned with both inside the discipline of history and in public history. In the past, many biographical works were accessible to the reading public, although its composition has changed quite markedly over time. Political biographies of those in high office continue to garner media attention, 
in some cases prompting intense ideological conflict. I'm thinking partly of recurrent debates about Churchill and his biographies here. Compendia such as national biographical dictionaries necessarily cast their nets much wider to include writers, artists, professional people, and so on, with the result that criteria for inclusion and debates over the length of entries are inevitable and unresolvable. And most of the people I mentioned this evening are deemed worthy of an entry in the Oxford Dictionary. Biography was public history long before that notion was formulated after the Second World War in North America, coming to the UK over the 1990s and early 2000s. And public history refers to two distinct phenomena, those practices and products that bring the past to general audiences, and also a burgeoning field that analyzes them, bringing meticulous reasoning and informed reflection to phenomena that are absolutely everywhere. It's useful to place the many types of biography in these contexts, where they're frequently accompanied by portraits. Biography is certainly a major genre in our current moment, popular and in some cases highly lucrative for publishers and booksellers, as the frequent emails that Waterstone sends out suggest, where history and biography are presented as separate categories with the latter comprising a seemingly infinite number of celebrity memoirs. And naturally, illustrations of the main protagonists are integral to such, to such publications. Both printed and digital media contain innumerable biographical items. We're positively drowning in obituaries and appreciations of the recently deceased, potted summaries of the lives of the famous and infamous from all periods, as well as personal accounts of life experiences. Now, I think it's worth noting the appeal of biography in popular culture, where so much public history resides. And one example is this, the current series of Who Do You Think You Are on BBC One, and I think it reveals the way in which starting from an individual's life and the history of their family, it's possible to trace stories back many hundreds of years. Now, I interpret this program and similar phenomena with huge audiences as responses to widespread curiosity or focused nosiness, if you like, about people who lived in the past. There have been 18 series of Who Do You Think You Are? More than 150 episodes, which regularly attract in excess of 6 million viewers. The episode broadcast on the 19th of October and still available on iPlayer about Judy Dench and her family touched on court culture, the history of science and illegitimacy. Showing where ancestors lived and what they looked like are integral to the programme's appeal. And in such contexts, it's immediately apparent how written documents, buildings and representations of named individuals work together to conjure up past lives. And I think the programme chimes with genealogical research, one of the most popular pastimes in the UK and elsewhere. Family history is a form of public history. The programmes would not work, however, without the person at the centre responding autobiographically to the historical materials and insights they are presented with. In the case of Judy Dent, she reinterpreted aspects of her father's behaviour 
in the light of the revelations of historians, archivists, and librarians about his wartime experiences. The program makers certainly work at provoking emotional reactions, which demonstrate that despite some ancestors living centuries ago, they can be intensely present for their descendants. Active participation in uncovering and engaging with the past, vital in so much public history, is enabled by biographical materials and by portraits. And during research processes, they provide invaluable evidence and stimulate the imagination. So it is true, I think, that portraits and biographies walk hand in hand. They go well, even naturally together, and have done for centuries. And this was Colin Matthews' position. There is a huge amount of evidence that an authentic portrait, or we should say probably authentic portrait, one depicting a named sitter and demonstrably taken from life, exercises an especially powerful allure, and while even those of doubtful origin can meet a deep need experienced by individuals, families, and institutions alike to know what someone in the past looked like, or allegedly looked like, Authenticity may be in the eye of the beholder. Now, whether portraits can really achieve such truthfulness is another matter. What's key here is the thirst, the thirst for a likeness, whatever the medium. And these points are reinforced by the common use of the term portrait to mean a faithful rendition of a phenomenon, whether that be a city, an area, a river, a period, or a person. Portrait is a compelling idea, Written accounts of people are sometimes called portraits. And the potency of the very notion portrait is borne out by its appeal to writers of fiction, including Nathaniel Hawthorne in the mid-19th and Ian Pears in the early 21st centuries. There's more to be said about how portraits and biographies go together. Most prosaically, biographies may be illustrated by portraits. There is a publishing history to be told here, one that includes technologies for reproducing images and that continues into our own digital era. The minimal amount of information often provided about the illustrations in publications can, however, be problematic. It may be so minimal as to be unclear what readers are supposed to make of them. In such cases, the covers of books and glossy inserts, for example, the portrait simply asserts the existence of a past life without indicating the relationships between lives and representations and the ways in which they can be mutually illuminating. A stronger relationship is envisioned when the two forms are explicitly treated as complementary to one another as if each on its own would somehow be incomplete. And one example comes from the 18th century, from the 18th century work by Thomas Birch, born in 1705 and died in 1766, uh, called, as you can see, the heads of illustrious persons of Great Britain, where portraits and biographies sit side, to si side by side on facing pages and are arranged chronologically so that history through historical personages unfolds before the reader's eyes. The elaborate and high quality engravings by leading figures 
indicate, indicate the value placed on the portraits and note the information that the print contains, which I think you can see there, about who owns the original so that patterns of collecting are woven into the engagement with lives and likenesses, encouraging wide-ranging associations to be made. The complementarity between biographies and portraits can also be discerned in extra-illustrated volumes, sometimes described as Grangerized, after the Reverend James Graver, Granger, 1723 to 1776, whose biographical history of England from Egbert the Great to the Revolution, consisting of characters disposed in different classes and adapted to a methodical catalogue of engraved British heads, went through several editions from 1769 onwards, and I'm using here an early 19th century edition. It lists known portraits of individuals, generally accompanied by fairly brief biographical comments, arranged by reign and by class, starting with the highest rank, working through the royal family, great officers of state, peers, and so on, and ending with class 12, quote, persons of both sexes, remarkable from only one circumstance of their lives, namely such as lived to a great age, deformed persons, convicts, etc., now, there's wonderful scholarship on Granger uh, portraits and extra illustration by people such as uh, Marcia Poynton and Lucy Peltz. And I, I suspect this um, scholarship is not as widely known as it deserves to be. I often find myself explaining the practice whereby a book is disassembled and prints, often but not always portraits, inserted into a blank sheet to face the relevant text and then rebound, generally in massive volumes. This labour-intensive and highly skilled practice continued into the 20th century. And you can see here with my pencil, which I do actually have, it's in my bag down there, um, just to give you a sense of the size of, of uh, these volumes, um, which I'm about to, to mention what these volumes are. The resources and deliberation that extra illustration requires, invite us to follow past mindsets about the relationships between portraits and biographies. The set of 73 extra illustrated volumes of the first Dictionary of National Biography in the National Portrait Gallery archive was compiled by the 20th century print collector, J.H. MacDonnell, and includes 7,000 portraits and some subjects are accompanied by several portraits. And you're seeing one of those volumes there, and this shows you roughly uh, the arrangement in, inside. Now, in this case, there's no additional commentary by the compiler, as is sometimes present. So somewhat like Birch's heads, biography and portrait sit by, side by side, complementing each other. Now, it's sometimes been claimed that portraits and biographies are, in effect, one and the same, that a portrait reveals a life, a life recounted as a portrait. I find the former a notion which, even if it can't be taken too literally, reveals how much 
viewers bring to and want to find in portraits. And at the very least, we can note that engraved portraits, the most ubiquitous form for many centuries, have tended to include text and sometimes visual elements that provide clues about the life of the person depicted, as we saw in Thomas Birch's compilation. And in such cases, it is indeed possible to find elements of biography in a portrait print. The close, diverse and interlocking relationships between portraits and biographies are relevant to all forms of history, including public history, inviting engaged responses from readers or viewers. Portraits especially mobilise associations, including affective ones, between people, responding to a curiosity and a sense of affinity or distance that words may express, but differently. Seeing a person in whatever form has a vivid immediacy that is distinct from the more drawn-out experience of reading, and it uses visual skills exercised and honed in day-to-day -day life, through which faces and bodies are interpreted. I'd suggest that such skills are essential to human existence. Many of them are unconscious or semi-conscious. And it seems likely that the appeal of portraits lies, at least in part, in their connection with basic human interactions and their capacity to forge associations, not just between people, but with places, cultural activities and forms of work. Now, there are further ways in which a palpable bodily connection with people from the past can be prompted. For, for instance, a signature, the result of someone writing their own name with their own hand, may also be deemed a kind of portrait, one that is sometimes added to prints, as here in the frontispiece to the Memoirs and Letters of Sir James Paget, born 1814, died 1899, a prominent surgeon and pathologist, and published two years after his death by his son. Stephen Paget, who was also medically trained, comments on his father's signature. We knew the moment when he signed a letter and the etching sound of his pen changed to a swishing sound as he wrote his name. And in a footnote, he elaborates further. The signature put under Mr. Richmond's portrait of him was written in 1891 when he was 77 years old. And I'm talking, of course, about the image on the left. And in this volume, as in so many others, especially from this period, we can trace the connections present in the portrait biography nexus, which in this case includes Gladstone. The artist mentioned by Stephen Paget was George Richmond, 1809 to 96, with whom James Paget became friendly around 1850 and to whom he remained close. Richmond had depicted Gladstone with the derivative print dated 1843. And this is hardly surprising such, since Richmond was a prolific artist and many of his characteristic works in chalk with white highlights circulated as engravings. And this is actually an original to show the, the highlighting of Paget from the National Portrait Gallery. And you can see all the details um, in the bottom. 
Now, close friendships with men such as Paget serve as a reminder of artists' active participation in professional and political networks. The 1901 volume contains four further portraits of Paget, including one by John Everett Millay, who depicted Gladstone several times, and about whom Colin Matthew wrote in the 1999 catalogue, accompanying a major exhibition at the Portrait Gallery. And there he insists on the public dimensions of portraiture, on Millet as what he calls a public artist. Now, Paget and Gladstone knew each other, and it's possible to marry an event recorded in Gladstone's diary for the 13th of February, 1877, with the more detailed account in Paget's memoir, which beautifully illustrates my themes. On that Tuesday, Gladstone, who had recorded meetings with Paget in 1873 on medical matters, heard him deliver the Hunterian oration at the College of Surgeons between three and four in the afternoon. The oration was named after John Hunter, 18, sorry, 1728 to 1793, whose collections form the centerpiece of the college. Gladstone then proposed Paget's health at the dinner, which took place in the museum, that is, in the place where Hunter's collections were on display. Stephen Paget asserts that his father spoke, quote, under Reynolds' magnificent portrait of Hunter. And I quote now from the oration. In that masterpiece of portraiture, which teaches like a chapter of biography, Hunter is at rest and looking out as one who is looking far beyond and from things visible into a world of truth and law, which can only be intellectually discerned. There's a copy of this portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. The original in the Royal College of Surgeons is available on the Art UK website. Now, it's not hard to see why Paget is drawn to Reynolds' version of Hunter. Hunter was a man who notoriously lacked social graces, but possessed, according to James Paget, a, quote, scientific mind, discernible to the artist, and through him, available to later surgeons, aspiring to combine such commitment to, in Paget's words again, the highest scientific culture with the status of gentleman. As James Paget put it, yes, Hunter did more than anyone to make us gentlemen. But of course, Reynolds was playing a vital role here. Now, it's possible to judge the significance of this portrait from the number of derivative prints it spawned, more than 20. So Reynolds, John Hunter, and later commentators worked hard in and through the portrait, which becomes a portal to concerns about status, masculinity, collecting human remains, which are shown in the portrait, and more. I use this example to make some broader points about the overlaps and synergies between public history in both its senses and academic history. Not only academic history, not only are the materials needed to explore such networks fully accessible, 
but the insights it is possible to draw from them can bring an understanding of work, class, and gender, as well as science and medicine, to wide audiences with portraits playing a prominent role. It follows, then, that artists, through whose visual intelligence and manual skills portraits are produced, must be central actors in public history. Reynolds knew full well what he was doing when he applied paint to canvas, even if he could not fully anticipate the desperate need to make Hunter a gentleman of science nearly a century later. Artists, then, are members of social webs within which portraits and biographies live and move. Without them, the existence, appeal, and circulation of likenesses and accompanying text would be impossible. Photographers became integral to these processes that affirm a person's value and experience. The 1953 photograph of Geoffrey Keynes 1887 to 1982, is a case in point. Keynes was a prominent surgeon, as well as a keen biographer, writer on portraiture, trustee, and chair of trustees of the National Portrait Gallery. And this work suggests the practice of appending a signature persisted. It actually measures 112 by 86 millimetres, and is also signed, as you can see, by the photographer, using the name of the Cambridge studio where it was taken, likely to have been the photographer, that is, Lettuce Ramsey, 1898 to 1985, the main photographer in the studio at that time. She was part of the circle around Geoffrey's brother, John Maynard Keynes, 1883 to 1946, who shared his brother's interest in biography and wrote about his own life, as Geoffrey did, while Maynard's art collection included many portraits, such as this one of himself and his wife from 1932, now in the National Portrait Gallery. Ramsay and Mossbratt photographed John Maynard, too, uh, as here in 1937, um, and several prints from that session are in the portrait gallery's collections. Now, I stress the size of a portrait just now because, like the medium, it bears on its display and the effect of reactions it engenders. John Maynard's is 160 by 114 millimeters, millimeters, but it fills more or less half the screen here, and perhaps as an object lesson uh, in the limitations of digital culture. Now, I've alluded to the many forms relationships between portraits and biographies took, including their presence together in reference works, print culture, broadcasting, and digital media. The ways they work in the labels provided by museums and art galleries should also be noted. Yet in scholarship, images and words are treated somewhat differently, and for perhaps understandable reasons. I think this situation has been exacerbated by increasing specialization and fragmentation within academia and by entrenched hierarchies between disciplines that tend to deem those built around text to be more weighty than those focused on visual culture. 
Scholarship in general, especially in the humanities and social sciences, revolves around words. Those who write about lives are wordsmiths. So direct affinities exist between people who publish on and read about the past and biographies. The words that conjure a life and the ways in which they do so are thoroughly familiar to the literate, especially if we consider how lives are sketched in, often using only a few words in ordinary conversations as well as in the media encountered every day. And I think anecdotes are a handy way of thinking about the constant verbal traffic around people and, have been and have, they have long been established as a biographical device. Little, little snippets about people were common currency for many centuries before all the dig digital forms that satisfy a seemingly insatiable curiosity about other people existed. Very often, portraits prompt micro-stories about their making, provenance, and reception. Nonetheless, likenesses come into being and work differently from stories. Their capacity to actually produce a portrait, as opposed to a casual photograph, is hardly, hardly widespread. And it is common to treat portraits, refined, carefully crafted forms of art, as mere illustrations to words, rather than as sources in their own right, capable of playing a central role in our historical understanding, precisely by virtue of the circumstances and skills through which they came into being and of their visual properties. Thus, while portraits and biographies are indeed partners, possessing the potential to work together in research processes to enrich the appreciation of past lives, it's vital to recognise that verbal and visual modes of rep representation are not identical. Let's now return to the Dictionary of National Biography, first published in 63 volumes between 1885 and 1900, where portraits were discussed and the appearance of subjects described in entries, but without a systematic approach to visual materials, so far as I can tell. And the entry for Queen Anne uh, provides, I think, a neat example. And I'm going to just read you a part of that entry. In person, Queen Anne is described by Smollett as of the middle size, well-proportioned. Her hair was of dark brown colour, her complexion ruddy, her features were regular, her countenance was rather round than oval, and her aspect more comely than majestic. This is the end of the quote from Smollett. With this, so I'm still quoting from the entry. With this judicious description may be compared the portrait drawn by the Duchess of Marlborough of the Queen in her last years when she had grown, and then internal quotes, exceeding gross and corpulent. Her hand was considered very beautiful and may still be admired in Nella's portrait at Windsor. And I should stress that I haven't read out, but there are little references embedded in the, in the text to affirm its sort of scholarly credentials. And this is one of the images of Anne that's present in the extra illustrated Dictionary of National Biography that I showed you earlier. 
Now, in the Oxford Dictionary, the role and status of portraits is, as we know, quite different, and that's thanks to Colin Matthew. Among his most important innovations was a partnership with the National Portrait Gallery in London to generate authoritative images for some of the entries. And the entry for Colin himself includes a portrait. And this same image by photographer Judith Aronson was acquired by the Portrait Gallery in 2008. And I'm showing you the image and now this. So this screenshot gives an indication of the sort of information that is available on the website. And I'm seeking to be precise here about public access to information about the past through digital means in this case. Now, I think indicating something of the scale of these enterprises may be helpful. In October 2021, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography contained 64,159 lives. Some articles cover more than one life. And 11,812 are accompanied by a portrait. I mean, this is just the, the homepage of the ODNB. The National Portrait Gallery contains 12,696 items in its primary collection, many more in its other co collection, in excess of 250,000 photographs, for example. It's just the comparable. Um, in the main collection, many media and materials are represented, including ceramic, wood, metal, chalk, pencil, pastel, watercolour, oil, acrylics, and works vary hugely in size. So the sheer variety of the ways in which it's possible for human beings to depict one another is truly wondrous. Now, like the sites of numerous public collections, the portrait galleries is heavily used and contains much research material. Founded in 1856, the gallery's vast and rich collections offer a history of the nation. They provide perspectives on British history in which biography and history are presented through and mingle with visual sources. Every item in the primary collection is shown on the website unless there are difficulties with obtaining rights. And as you have seen, website entries indicate manner and date of acquisition alongside size and medium. Now, in practice, portraits become available in unpredictable ways and at varying costs. Thus, multiple contingencies bear on the composition of the collection. And in this respect, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography could not be more different, since the staff are free to include a high-quality biography of anyone who meets the entry, entry criteria. The ODNB does not have to depend on complex art markets or the wishes of donors and preferences of trustees and nor on the success of fundraising to acquire highly prized items. What these enterprises do share, however, is a concern with the basis of an individual's claim to fame and the related challenge of assessing that claim in national terms. Both have to grapple with status and occupation. Now, while there is a general familiarity with debates about the national importance of certain individuals, indeed, 
This is a theme running through the current so-called culture wars. I think there's much less appreciation in the case of the National Portrait Gallery of its bearing on the worlds of work. It is taken as self-evident that those with high levels of political power, like members of ruling dynasties and classes are portrayed, but less appreciated how the history of portraiture might act as a commentary on a range of occupations and professions, from musicians, actors and sports people to lawyers, soldiers, scientists, historians and many more. Now, certainly a challenge here is the attention given to celebrity, for instance in the media, where little emphasis is placed on the labour and effort that celebrities expend, and more on their love lives, social media activities and public, public appearances. And I'd like to suggest that the preoccupation with celebrity, which is hardly new, is connected with points already touched on about historically changing ways of encapsulating past lives. And the more past lives become commodified, the greater the need for quickly apprehended tags to serve as essential marketing tools. And in fact, all my examples do deploy tags of some kind. Now, I'm not decrying these super brief summaries, simply observing the roles they play in biography, portraiture and popular culture in museums and also in the most sober of contexts. Note, for example, how in both the Dictionary of National Biography and the Oxford version, every person is given a brief encapsulating tag, as indeed they were in earlier compendia. In Colin Matthews' case for the National Portrait Gallery, it is historian and editor. For the Oxford Dictionary, it is historian and founding editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. The phrase generally refers to an occupation of some kind, serving as a prompt not just to register forms of success, but the kinds of work that bring figures to public attention in the first place. And I'm stressing this because it is through such tags that many people encounter and think about significant figures in both past and present, and they act as a kind of currency in contemporary popular culture. The phrase fame, power and influence used at one time by the Florence Nightingale Museum sums up the attributes most sitters may be expected to possess, if in varying degrees, but a grasp of their work is indispensable. At the same time, the Portrait Gallery's website invites users to go deeper to note the size of the print in Collins' case, to consider other representations of him and further works by the same artist. For instance, she photographed the historian Keith Thomas and his wife Valerie, a teacher, in 1993, five years after he had been knighted. And all these features can lead, if we so choose, into bigger historical issues via the forms of association the website deploys and users supplement. The innovation here is digital technology. While connections between people, their claim to fame, 
their links with artists and organizations are well-established ways of understanding figures, both past and present. Websites simply make such connections easier to perceive and trace. Clicking on a digital link accomplishes in less than a second what people have been doing for hundreds, even thousands of years, recounting lives, making and valuing portraits, exchanging gifts of likenesses, collecting and displaying them, all the while asking questions about identity, life stories and appearance. While abbreviations, which is what the tags are, are neat communicative devices, much like uh, the ones we used all the time, we use all the time in ordinary conversation, they are also revealing of social structures and values, including the history of work broadly defined. So we know that the digital world is of fundamental importance for public history, which as a constellation of practices aspires to reach broad audiences. And while not everyone, even in so-called developed countries, has access to the internet, many do, and for them the website of the National Portrait Gallery is invaluable, capable of slaking the thirst I mentioned earlier for knowledge of lives and appearances in the past. And although its economic model is completely different, the Oxford Dictionary also has wide reach. More than half of our public libraries subscribe, and through them it is possible to use it at one's leisure. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, like the Portrait Gallery, is thus making a major contribution to public history and needs to be understood and assessed in these terms. To reiterate, it was because Colin Matthew saw a natural connection between biographies and portraits that the project with the National Portrait Gallery was initiated in the first place. And there are links to the gallery embedded in entries. Now, both dictionary and gallery operate within a larger landscape. Public history takes many forms and comparisons can be helpful. We might consider here, for example, Greg Jenner's 2020 book, Dead Famous, which deals with the phenomenon of celebrity using portraits and biographical materials. Jenner describes himself as a public historian. And although he mentions his research process in the introduction, the emphasis is, as the blurb on the cover of Dead uh, Famous indicates, on how, and I quote, the famous and infamous have been thrilling, titillating and outraging us for much longer than we think. It is, the blurb says, entertaining, surprising, funny and fascinating. Most of the images in a glossy insert are portraits, but with very little information about them being provided for readers. The book adopts a specific voice, one in which humour plays a significant part, and I think the role of humour in public uh, history deserves attention. And it provides a handy contrast with the Oxford Project and the Portrait Gallery, and with best-selling biographies, biographies that cover similar themes. So I'm just using this as an example to suggest how, even within the specific areas of portraits and biographies, public history is amazingly diverse, and that that invites close analysis of text, images, and the relations between them. We can now uh, consider the entry 
for Colin Matthew himself in the ODNB, written by the eminent historian Ross McKibben, born in 1942, a colleague and a friend, and the same generation as his subject. The entry follows an unfolding life, starting with his family of origin, while also assessing the significance of specific aspects of it. The tone is frank yet affectionate, full of personal detail, but also soberly measured about Colin's contributions to scholarship. One finishes reading it with a genuine sense of a person, their achievements and legacy. It is an ab admirably rounded account. The portrait photograph, indeed, shows a man at work, at work, looking up for just a moment, we may suppose, and it maintains the emphasis on the sitter's occupation, which decontextualized head and shoulder representations cannot do unless a uniform of some kind is involved. In addition to the narrative element, there are sections of further information at the end, and these include the size of the estate as well as sources and likenesses. As a result, it is possible to imagine both the research processes behind the memoir and those that might be prompted by it, as the National Portrait Gallery website also permits. And these points suggest the special value of forms of public history that indicate research processes and possible research processes. Now, at this point, it's time to return to George Smith, whom I mentioned earlier. Here he is again, and I've deliberately left the background um, in so you can see the boundaries of the portrait. It was painted by this man, shown here in the self-portrait from 1907, and we'll come to him in a moment. Now, Smith is hardly a household name, more familiar to literary scholars than historians and the public. So it is possible to find him on a website devoted to Wilkie Collins, who was an author with whom he was associated, for example. And when I googled who found, founded the Dictionary of National Biography, replies tended to stress the role of Leslie Stephen, 1832 to 1904, the first editor, a man of letters, who is so much better known than Smith. And he tends to remember now, and which I think is really quite um, just, as the father of two remarkable women, Vanessa Bell, the painter, and Virginia Woolf, the writer. And as Smith said at a dinner on June the 6th, 1894, well, gentlemen, the Dictionary of National Biography was my idea. Loud cheers. I described him as a prominent and highly successful publisher, yet he was so much more than that phrase implies, and it was his determination, resources, vision, and phenomenally hard work, phenomenal hard work that enabled the dictionary to be published and completed. In other words, the dictionary's history is as much about changing business practices, financial acumen, and the organization of work as it is about the world of letters. In Smith's autobiography, not published in full so far, he reveals in meticulous detail how closely connected literature in its broadest sense and business were in his life, career, and dealings with authors, 
It shows how interweaving strands converge in a life and therefore that accounts of lives, including portraits, enable historians to trace such interconnections. Smith saw the dictionary as a gift to his country, a sort of national monument, which his considerable wealth allowed him to create, since he never made nor ever expected to make money on the project. His portrait was painted posthumously by the artist John Collier, 1850 to 1934, who is not widely known either, although he painted many of the most prominent people of his time, including churchmen, scientists, medical men and writers. I can't say exactly how he went about painting Smith's portrait after his death. It is possible he had photographs to work from, although none are present in the sitter's box in the NPG archive, which includes any references, for example, in auction house catalogues, to a given person's portrait that the staff can find. I suspect that Collier, who had married into the Huxley family, knew Smith, but don't have absolute proof to back that up. Throughout his career, Collier painted posthumous portraits, so it is reasonable to assume he had a practiced way of doing so. The registered packet for each work in the primary collection can be wonderfully illuminating. The one for Smith's portrait, which entered the collection in 1911, is not especially voluminous. It contains letters from Elizabeth Smith, his widow, insisting that it must be acknowledged as a gift from some of his friends, as well as labels and drafts of labels. And also in the packet is a 12-page pamphlet recounting a dinner that was given in George's honour in 1894 by his contributors, and it was from that that I quoted a moment ago. In terms of subject matter, the dictionary itself naturally takes pride of place. And so in that sense, the pamphlet is bi biographical, and it refers throughout to aspects of the lives of the assembled company that may also be described as biographical. Based on newspaper reports, it paints a vivid picture, not just of an occasion, but of the participants and their project, and above all, of its prime mover, George Smith. What it does illustrate is, I think, a key point, that texts and images are perpetually interacting, that we use each to inform the other. And far from a picture being worth a thousand words, images need and depend on words, just as words can be viewed afresh in the light of images. The pamphlet also reveals something of the social and professional relationships within which the dictionary arose, and the importance attached to biographical, to reliable biographical accounts. Smith's conf Smith confesses to having sleepless nights about possible inaccuracies. Portrait the idea, portraits the artefacts, were integral parts of the world within which the 1894 dinner took place. These issues drew public interest and in this sense can be construed as public history, a century before the term was starting to be used in Britain. There are differences between now and then, however, to which historians, however they may describe themselves, might want to pay attention. I describe Leslie Stephen as a man of letters, and Elizabeth Smith in her 1911 letters 
suggests her, stressed her husband's work for literature. As late as 1984, Harold Oral published a book entitled Victorian Literary Critics, which deals with writings by George Henry Lewis and Leslie Stephen, amongst others, that were clearly historical. So these are loose, labile terms. History and literature and biography clearly overlap, and the ways in which they do so change. The marked expansion in recent decades of the materials examined within literature departments has had an impact on historical practice. The development of science and literature as a field has shaped approaches in the history of science, for instance. These categories clearly matter, and shifts in their use raise questions about the way in which today historical writings are literature. I think this has an immediate bearing on biography, and especially given the prominence of literary critics as biographers. Of course, some historians are biographers too, now, I wonder if there is sufficient emphasis among historians, both inside and outside the academy, on beautiful writing, on clear exposition, on ways of reaching wide audiences through literary excellence. And I understand that Colin Matthew cared deeply about such matters, and I think we might therefore take our cue from him. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, as designed by him, is, as I've said, a major work of public history. And by extension, the history of biographical dictionaries, the processes through which biographies and portraits were made, used, and come into our research now, can be integrated into public history. In addition to aspiring to excellent writing, Historians do well to communicate their manner of working more broadly. Work taken in its widest sense alongside achievement underpins ways of speaking about past lives. In the case of portraiture, we've barely scratched the surface of the ways in which it can illuminate past endeavours, whether these generated an income or not. George Smith's biographical labours lost him money but they were nonetheless work, as his autobiography reveals. And we, too, can share our labours and indicate why they matter and do so with the public, exploring in the process how portraits and biographies keep those we value alive. So I'd like to suggest to you that Colin Matthew lives not just in the hearts of his family, friends and colleagues, but in the fruits of his working life which continued to inspire us. And I hope he would have approved of the idea that historians share their endeavours as fully as possible and that exploring portraits and biographies can have public benefit. It is fitting, then, that his portrait, available to all, shows him mid-flow, still present. Would you say something, please, about the role of vanity and embellishment in the creation of portraits and how this might contrast with biographical writing? We think biographical writings don't embellish. Um, I, I, I don't warm to the idea that, that vanity is a key theme in, in portraiture. Um, 
and one reason for that is that it seems... If, if, if portraiture is a social activity, which is what I've been suggesting it is, a person is implausibly depicted as looking totally different from how they are in real life. Of course, there are circumstances where that, that may happen. But I, by looking in detail at the kinds of materials I've been suggesting today, I think we can get a handle on, on how people are depicted and, and indeed whether so-called vanity is a, is, a, is a driving force. But I, I don't think it's a major concept that we want to use. What do you think? Do you think that Wikipedia is a useful, popular public tool that's combining biography often with portrait? Useful. I don't know what the right word is. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a. I think that's a very interesting question. So my view about Wikipedia is we have to accept it as a phenomenon and bring our historical approaches to it. So we have to bring a kind of critical discernment to, for example, which portraits Wikipedia uses. I think it's quite widely known that Wikipedia quite often uses portraits without permission. And there was a lot of conflict between the National Portrait Gallery and Wikipedia over this. So I certainly am not going to cluck about Wikipedia. Rather, I'm going to say it's part of this big tapestry that we have to somehow map where people are going to look for that dual point of entry into a person through words and, use, and using images at the same time. Well, we have reached the end of the, our time, I'm afraid, so it only remains for me to thank Professor Jordanova one more time for a wonderful lecture, and I'd ask you to join me.